Hey guys, it's Ben. Sorry for the background noise. I'm in the kitchen and the refrigerator hums. We're gonna do another voucher code this week. Go to Blinkist.com slash friends and put in the code irresistible, which is the name of Adam Alter's book. Somehow irresistible is very difficult to spell. Just remember it has the word resist in it. All right, have fun. Blinkist.com slash friends, irresistible to get two free weeks of Blinkist. Let's start the episode. Hey, welcome to the Blinkist podcast. I'm Ben Schumann-Stoller. If you're new to the Blinkist podcast, the idea is that we're going deeper into the nonfiction book world. We're talking to the authors. We're trying to get into their heads, trying to figure out what makes them tick. We're trying to take big ideas and make them personal. This episode is an interview with psychology and marketing professor, researcher, writer, speaker, and overall very smart person, Adam Alter. Alter published the best-selling and terrifying and also amazing, I think, Drunk Tank Pink in 2013. And he's currently doing his promo tour about his brand new book, which is coming out on March 7th in the U.S. and I think uh, the week before in Europe. Uh, The book is called Irresistible. I just finished reading it. It's kind of scary and also really a deep dive into why behavioral addictions to technology are just skyrocketing and what that means for us in the society. So, you know, gaming addictions, binge watching, workaholism, email addictions, all of that stuff. So in the interview, we talk about that. We talk about why Steve Jobs didn't let his kids use the iPad. We talk about uh, a product idea that he had with Daniel Kahneman. And we talked about Vietnam. Sure, we were all over the place a little bit. Thanks for filling out the survey. If you haven't yet, I will put a link to the survey in the show notes. Would really appreciate you filling that out so we can get a better idea of who's out there in the murky internet worlds. Otherwise, um, yeah, let's just roll the tape and enjoy it. Catch you in the outro. I'm just having a last sip of water. Okay. Forever. No, just a... <laughs> Dramatic. Yeah, right. It's, you didn't realize how intense this was going to be. Yeah, I didn't realize. Yeah, what, what are we getting ourselves into? <laughs> no. So, all right, cool. Well, then, um, yeah, thanks for coming out to the Blinkist podcast in the middle of your promo tour for Irresistible. Appreciate Thank it. you for inviting me. So I actually finished Irresistible today and um, combined with Drunk Tank Pink, which is also a great book, we, I, I like was trying to think of what connects them and I was, I couldn't not think about that they both share a certain, like a perspective of a certain weakness on the human brain. And like Drunk Tank Pink shows all the ways we're influenced even without us knowing and Irresistible shows some ways we're... I don't know, easily trapped in dangerous habits and behaviors and paints a sometimes quite a scary picture, I think, of like our children growing up to be socially maladjusted and obese zombies, more or less. (laughs) Um, So the first question I wanted to ask you was, are we like totally effed as humans? Uh, That's the message of Drunk Tang Pink, I guess. Uh, It's... I wouldn't say we're totally effed as humans, but I think what what the books are trying to do, or what I'm trying to do in these these books, is to to tell us how we're in trouble. And once we understand how we're in trouble, that's obviously the first step to remedying the situation, or or at least lessening the the negative effects of these cues on our lives. So, Drunk Tank Pink is a big survey. It's like here are all the things that influence us in ways that we might not expect. And Irresistible is much more focused, but I think it's a much bigger problem. Drunk Tank Pink is sort of like so the weather influences how you think. And, 
you know, there's a cloudy day and on a cloudy day you think more deeply. And that's interesting. But that doesn't tell you that you're F necessarily. It just tells you that you're being influenced. And I, I think Irresistible really makes a much a much more profound and dark case. And I think it's more important to deal with that issue than, than it was to deal with the issues in Drunk Tank Pink. All right. Well, then let's get into some of those issues. I mean, there's a there's a good quote in the book that says, addiction is a sort of misguided love. What is behavioral addiction and why is it like a misguided love? It's like a misguided love in the same way that, you know, loving the wrong person is very destructive. And what ends up happening when you love the wrong person is you develop a very strong need for that person. You develop a strong want, but you don't like them. And there's this inconsistency between wanting and liking. And there are a number of researchers who study addiction who describe addiction in that way. They basically say that wanting and liking are two very different things. And often we really, really want something that we know is bad for us and we hate that thing. And that's sort of like bad relationships. That's like bad love. And it's it's a very useful analogy, I think, for understanding behavioral addictions because what ends up happening, and you get this if you talk to people about their phones in particular, is we, we form this love-hate relationship with our phones. It's sort of like a bad relationship where we're always here for them and somehow they still continue to hurt us. And so to be a little bit more concrete about it, I think behavioral addictions, as far as I'm concerned, are different from substance addictions because they don't involve ingesting a chemical. They don't involve ingesting drugs or alcohol or nicotine, but they're experiences that still are addictive in a similar sense. And what I mean by that is that in the short term, they are things that you really want to do and that you do compulsively. And in the long term, they're ultimately bad for you or they undermine your well-being. And they can undermine your well-being in lots of different ways. They can damage your social relationships. They can damage your romantic relationships. They can make you less healthy because you don't exercise enough. They can make you less healthy because you exercise too much. You may develop an addiction to exercise. They can change your uh, relationship with work. Maybe you work too much. Maybe you don't work enough because you're playing games or whatever it may be. But but it's essential that the, the addiction is bad for you in the long term but good for you in the short term or feels good in the short term. And you make the point in the book that these behavioral addictions are getting worse, or at least there's more of them now than ever before. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I think there are two main reasons for that. One is that uh, tech is being delivered more quickly than ever before. So, you know, the games you played, if you played computer games in the 90s or even the early 2000s, there was a clunkiness to the games. They weren't delivering information. They weren't delivering rewards as reliably and as quickly as they needed to to become exceedingly addictive. There were some addictive games, like even Tetris way back was was pretty addictive. But the games now are very, very advanced. They can deliver really, really rapid feedback. They can deliver rapid rewards in a way that wasn't true some years ago. But um, I think the other big thing is that the companies that are producing this this content are much more mindful about the factors that make an experience addictive. They have consultants, they have people on board who essentially work to make sure that the version that they release to the public is the, the most weaponized, difficult to resist version of the program. Now, they wouldn't describe it that way. They're just trying to make the best product possible. But the way you measure whether a game or an experience is good is by measuring how long people spend with it. Do they buy it? And then more importantly, do they stay with it? Do they stick with it? Do they keep using it? And that's more true now than ever before. We know how to make things that people will stay with, that, that will, will be difficult for them to resist. Mm -hmm. 
But I mean, you're you you work with marketers. You work in marketing. I mean, you're a marketing professor as well as a psychology professor. And I mean, isn't this isn't making something irresistible and addictive kind of the goal of marketing? I, I think it is. I mean, I think what you're trying to do in business in general is make something that people really want and that they feel they can't do without. But in most industries, that's okay. You know, it's not going to ruin their lives or, or damage their social relationships. Like if you make if you make something and I really want to buy it and I use it a lot, in a lot of cases, that's not a problem. I think what what has become a problem is that these things that we're talking about, these experiences infringe on our lives and infringe on our well-being in a way that's fairly new, that's that's recent. So it's not just that they're hard to resist. It's not just that, that people are making products that we really want. It's that that wanting ends up uh, undermining our well-being in other areas, more so than I think has been true in the past. So let, let's be a little bit more specific. Like, um, I guess a phrase that sticks in my head is the idea of the cucumber brain. Yes. So can you explain what the cucumber brain is? And and I mean, maybe one thing that's so scary is this idea that our bodies are actually changing in a way that could have irreparable consequences, no? Yeah. So the cucumber brain is an idea that comes from a psychologist who works at a clinic in Seattle. And um, it's a special clinic that's designed just to treat young men with uh, gaming addiction and internet addiction issues. I visited this clinic. Uh, it's not really a clinic. It's a sort of, it's a house in the woods. And these guys go there and they spend six weeks and they try to wean themselves off whatever game addictions they have. And and it's guys. You say guys and you say that in the book too because it has to be guys. It has to be guys. They try to admit women, but it turns out that people with gaming addictions often have other addictions, including sex addiction, and that can be another complication. But um, one thing you have to tell people when they're addicted to something is that the best thing you can possibly do is never expose yourself to that thing again. And we know that from alcohol. You, if you have an alcohol problem or you're an alcoholic, you can't just have one sip. Mm-hmm. And so what, what the psychologists at this clinic tell the people who are there is that you, you, you have a brain. Your brain is like a cucumber, but it can become pickled. And once your cucumber brain has become pickled like a pickled cucumber, it can never go back to being unpickled. So you now have to treat it differently. You can't treat it like you used to do before it was pickled. Forever now, you have to keep yourself either completely away from these games or if you absolutely have no choice but to be be exposed to them, you need to be extremely, extremely careful because since your brain has now become pickled, you are susceptible to further addiction. And are are they only treating gaming addiction there or are they treating some of the other addictions that you mentioned in the book like binge watching or social media or even exercise addiction and those things? It's mostly game addiction at this clinic. Okay. Gaming addiction, I think, for a number of reasons, has has had the the gravest consequences for well-being for a lot of young males in particular. Women too now more and more, but especially males. So the, the, the single most addictive experience on the planet, as far as many people are concerned, is the game World of Warcraft. And Which I've never played. Have you? Did you play it in the end? No, I didn't. In fact, I spoke to a, a, a game developer and game expert. He, he works at NYU in the NYU Game Center. So his job is basically to teach people about games. And he said to me, you know, I, my job is to play all the culturally significant games so that I can discuss them in class. And I refuse to even go near this game because I know how dangerous it is. I know that I would lose years of my life to it, which is pretty staggering. It's it, um, so I haven't. It's like sh- it's shocking. I mean, the book opens up with the story of Steve Jobs wouldn't let his kids use use the iPad. 
Yeah. So, you know, the day they released the iPad, uh, he gets up on the stage at Apple and says to everyone, this is the greatest device we've ever known. It'll be the best way to deliver all sorts of content. You can play games, you can use the internet, you can watch TV, you can do pretty much anything on this device. It's a miracle. But then two years later, he's asked by a newspaper reporter, so your kids must love this device, which is a logical thing to ask, given what he says about the device in public. And he says, no, we don't let them use the iPad. We've never had one in our home which is staggering. It tells you what people in the know think about these products. Well, so, and you mentioned in the book that you have a kid, and and I also am a new parent. I don't know how old your kid is, but... Congratulations. Uh, thank you. He's a year old. He's almost a year old. Yeah, so they're not so crazy far apart. And yeah, I'd be curious to hear, what do you, when you heard that Steve Jobs story, what did you think? Well, I'm trying my best to keep him away from screens for the first two years of his life. That's my goal. It's it's sort of arbitrary, but it's also the number that the American Pediatric Association has chosen. So I'm, I'm using two as a guide. So far, so good. He doesn't use screens yet. But I think it gets harder in the second year because they they are exposed more to screens and they also have a better sense of what you're doing when you're with a screen. Actually, I, w- I did once break the rule. I had a, an iPhone in my hand and I was I was looking at something. I can't remember what. And he had never done anything that showed that he sort of really understood the way the world worked, but he reached over and he sort of swiped the screen <laughs> and the screen changed. And he looked at me <laughs> with surprise and I could see this as like the greatest rewarding <laughs> moment he'd had in a, a while. And it scared me and it made me realize just how well designed these devices are, that it, even a baby can play with them and understand what they do. Right. But I think it gets much trickier when they're older and when they're teens and when all their friends are using these devices because you can't be the crazy parent who says, you know, over my dead body, will you use this device? There's no way you're going to go anywhere near phones and iPads because you'll you'll create this ostracized outcast of a kid, and that's not what you want either. So you have to be smart about it, and you have to basically work out how they can use tech sustainably, which is the, sort of like the environmental language, that we can't not consume energy. Mm-hmm. We can't not consume fuels and resources. You just have to learn to do it in a way that's sustainable in the long run. But you don't even, what about like FaceTime? You have family all over the world, right? So yes, um, is FaceTime also a no-go? No, <laughs> that's a good point, actually. I, I should say FaceTime is definitely a yes-go. Um, hmm. we, we do use FaceTime. I don't know what he makes of it. Uh, he doesn't seem to really recognize my parents yet. I'm sure he will, my parents and my brother. I'm sure he will in time, but um, that is the one exception. And I, I, I think it's important to say I... I think tech is miraculous, and it's allowed me to do all sorts of things that I couldn't have done otherwise, like communicate with people who are far away. Mm-hmm. So, like, I, this, I'm not, like this interview, for example. Like this interview, for example. You, you're you know, across the Atlantic, and we're able to have this chat, and it's terrific. But I, I just think, as with many good things, they can go too far. So it's not that I think no one should ever use tech. It's just that I think we should understand how it works more than we do and how it's infringing on our lives. Mm. Yeah, I mean, um, when I talked to I talked to Cal Newport. Uh, do you know Cal Newport's work at all? I have read I read his op-ed fairly recently in the Times. He basically says we should not use tech at all, or we should not use social media, and like and be very careful. And he's and his whole thing is the things that have made the modern knowledge worker even possible are like exactly the things that will make the knowledge worker completely ineffective. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and in a way, I I pick this up also in your book. It's like you talk about there. Are, there's the Fitbit. There are all these things that have you know they're they're well intentioned technologies. Mm-hmm. Exercise is good. Um, you know, like you said at the beginning of this um, chat, 
businesses should make things that people want, you know? Yeah. Um, but then somehow Slack and emails and those things in Cal Newport's view makes it impossible to actually get any work done. And, you know, you make the point that that people are are working themselves literally to death they because they can't leave their they can't leave their email. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I, I think it's very tricky. I, you know, I, I'm sympathetic with the people who produce these programs to some extent because, unless they're trying to make a weaponized device or experience, I think a lot of them are just trying to make a product that's engaging and enjoyable and interesting that people want to use, which is admirable. I mean, that's what you do when you make products. You don't want people to to use your product for five minutes and then move on to the next thing. Right. So I, I think it's tricky. There's 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 a, a balance to be struck, but the better the program or the product, the harder it is to ensure that people aren't going to just keep using it over and over and over again and become compulsive about it. So it, it, it is tricky. Again, sustainability to me is a better is a better way of thinking about this stuff, if you can. Uh, for some people, you just have to go completely off the product altogether. But personally, I think it's it's more effective for most people to to just use these devices in a way that's more mindful. So one thing you can do, for example, is say from 5 p.m. to 8 p.m., I will not use a screen. No phones, no tablets, no TV, nothing like that. I'll, I will interact with nature or with other people. Mm-hmm. And that to me seems much wiser in the long run. But, you know, each person has his or her own way of dealing with it. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be right back. Okay, last week I put up a survey. And we got a bunch of really good responses. I was actually a little surprised. And I asked people if they could do it fast and if they could just prove actually they're like human beings that actually listen to the podcast and not just robots in internet land. Take a screenshot of the last page of the survey when you've completed it and I'll like send something. And then four actual real human beings did it. Jake, Will, Eliza, or Eliza, sorry, and Steen. Uh, I'm gonna send them just bags of stuff. I'm gonna keep the link to the survey in the show notes. Please fill it out if you have a couple minutes and you haven't done so already. The responses that we got are already hugely helpful. And for me, it's important because I can actually picture the actual human beings that are listening to the podcast. And it's not just a bunch of internet robots. So yeah, click it and fill it out. There's like eight questions. It takes two minutes. Now let's get back to the interview with Adam Alter. The second half is where S gets R. (laughs) I'm back here with Adam Alter. And... You were talking about sustainability in the language of, of environmentalists. We, we have to use energy, but we can be smarter about how we use it. And I really, what I like about the, the sustainable technology thing is common sense, right? I yes. mean, I, I also talked to Ariana Huffington on this podcast, and the thing we ended up talking about was, you know, it's great that you're ambitious. It's great that you want to, that you're, that you're achieving so much and that you're busy and blah, blah, blah. But like, don't kill yourself, like go to sleep. You know, what I mean? we know we know that sleep is so important for you. Like, don't you're not going to get anything done if you're sleep deprived. So, like, just use common sense. And I guess the question then is, um, how can we embed some common sense into the, I guess, gaming, binge watching, and social media worlds? Yeah, well, I think where 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 this becomes tricky is that you may know the right thing to do, but you just can't do it. I can't tell you how many times I've had the experience that I know. I need to go to bed or I know I need to start working, but I'm doing some other thing. I'm watching my seventh episode of the newest show on Netflix or I can't stop playing a game. And 
I, I think common sense says you should stop doing what you're doing. I guess the book is more about suggesting that common sense sometimes isn't enough. You may know the right thing. I think we all know the right thing. We all know it's probably better to sit face to face with someone and have a good conversation than it is to sit side by side playing two separate games. You know, that obviously isn't the best way to communicate as human beings. But the, the trick is getting there. How do, you, how do you deal with it? How do you fix the problem? So what do you think? I mean, I know you listed some some ways, especially towards the end of the book, of harnessing addictions, but how, how can we do that? I mean, do we really have to rely on governments uh, making, poli- ma- making policies to not... What, was, what did you say in the book, that China and Korea were talking about having no game, no game times from midnight to 8 a.m. or something? Yeah, the Cinderella laws, they call them. It's right. this idea that, you know, midnight... Games go off. You, you're not allowed to use a game. It's illegal to play a game after midnight, which is so dystopian and so so frightening an idea. I'd, I'd hate to think we have to resort to that. I, I hope there are other ways around this, but some governments feel there aren't. Well, what what about the environment thing? I mean, you talk a lot about heroin in the Vietnam War, and the point is, that it's not that all the GIs who went to Vietnam had addictive personalities necessarily. No, it was the environment. And yes. like, I guess, I guess we should get a little bit into what addiction is again, and and maybe the easiest way to to avoid and handle these behavioral addictions is environment. Is that true? Yes, exactly. So I think the single biggest, most powerful tool we have is is behavioral architecture. It's this idea that just as there are architects who design buildings or cities, we have the power to design our own environments and our own lives, and we are the architects of those lives, and. Even very small decisions can have big consequences. So one of the most obvious ideas is that if something is nearby, you will use it more. And if something's addictive, that's especially problematic. So what that means is, um, you know, if you're finding that you're not connecting with your significant other or a friend, the best thing you can do is remove the phone from the room, is put it in a drawer in a different room or, or put it in your bag or, or do whatever you need to do to make sure that it's not in view. What's interesting about phones in particular is that There's research showing that even if you're not using your phone, if it's turned upside down, but it's in view, so it's like nearby on a table, even that phone's presence, though it's not being used, is enough to diminish the connection you form with that person. It basically reminds you that there's this whole other world out there of possibilities, and so you end up paying less attention to the world you're in. It makes you less present focused, which is a problem. So yes, I think you're right about environment. I think a huge part of managing these issues is crafting your environment in such a way that you you minimize the the extent to which these devices and these screens infringe on your on your what you're doing right now, which obviously should be about other people or should be about nature or should be about interacting with animals or whatever it is you you want to do. So is so is the most important thing to avoid just sort of not having the phone visible everywhere or I mean, you did mention some way to handle Netflix binge watching, right? That was pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, I don't know how realistic that is for most people, <laughs> but I love the idea. And a friend told me that that's what he does. So the basic idea is that if you think about the structure of an episode in most of these long form shows where you have, say, 13 or 22 episodes in a season, that the last five minutes will always set up a cliffhanger and there'll be a cliffhanger at the end. And the reason you keep watching episode after episode is because that cliffhanger needs to be resolved. Um, Mm -hmm. One of the things I talk about in the book is that cliffhangers are really addictive. That when you don't know the outcome of something, when the loop is open and hasn't yet been closed, you preoccupy yourself with that issue until it's been closed. So the first five minutes of the show will, will resolve the cliffhanger that was set up in the last five minutes of the previous show. 
So if you start to recognize when they're setting up the next cliffhanger, you stop watching the episode at that point. Mm-hmm. And then the next time you start watching, you pick up at that point. So instead of watching an episode the way they present it to you, the, the producers, so say from minute zero to minute 41 or 42, you watch from the last five minutes of one episode to the last five minutes of the next one. Right. So, so you're always <laughs> avoiding the teeth of that cliffhanger because you're, you're getting ahead of it or staying behind it. That's so good. Is that, this is? Have you tried it? Yeah, it's 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 worked for me actually. When I really absolutely cannot afford to watch more than one or two episodes of a show, I will I will recognize that that moment is coming when the cliffhanger is being set up, and I'll just hit pause. And it is very effective actually. Oh, you, man. you need a bit of self control to do it because you want to keep watching. But if you, it's much easier to stop watching then than it will be five minutes later. I have a really bad habit when I whenever I'm watching a sort of like a thriller or any kind of tense movie, I'll just look up everything that's going to happen in the movie on Wikipedia, <laughs> like while I'm watching the movie so that I can, I, then I'm just sort of separated from it. And then it's, <laughs> this is not, I guess this isn't really about the cliffhanger, but I'll just avoid the emotional connection entirely. And then, and then I'm out. That's then another just... way to do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you what's interesting about that is if you ask people, do you think you'll enjoy the show more if you know the outcome at the beginning? of people say, no, of course not. The reason you enjoy things is because of the surprise, because you don't know the outcome. But most people end up enjoying things more when they know the outcome. It's, It's interesting. They, they sort of do this thing, they sort of match patterns, like they're, they're watching this thing and they're anticipating it happening. Because they already know what's happening, it feels a little bit more familiar, a little more fluent, and they get some joy from that. And so even if there's a big cliffhanger, a lot of the time people will enjoy knowing what that cliffhanger is, or the ending before it happens. That's, that's interesting. That's kind of unexpected, actually, because... Very. There's, and also with all the studies that you cite, for example, the scratch-off lottery, I don't know if it was a study, I guess it was a study where they, if you almost lose, you're, it's like more addictive, right? And if you, or am I confusing all of this stuff? No, because no, no, the- you're right. No, you're totally right. So, so basically, these are two separate things. So the one thing is when you gamble, if you knew the outcome of every gamble, that would be boring. So we, we like gambles where there's a chance of losing because that makes winning more sweet. Okay. But if you won every time, eventually you'd get bored. Like the, the story of the, you know, an extremely attractive guy or girl goes out and can always find someone to go home with if that's what they want to do at the end of the night. That's eventually boring. That's not interesting to them eventually. And, that, you know, they've got to find something else to do. But if you're the kind of person who goes out and it's always a big question mark, that'll become a far more addictive experience. And the difference with TV episodes is in theory, you're always going to win. Like there's going to be an outcome. You just don't know what that outcome is going to be. It's not a difference between winning and losing. It's just knowing what kind of win you're going to have. And that that people find really appealing. Right. So how does this jibe with the, is it called the Zygarnik effect? Yeah. The Zygarnik effect is the idea that when there is an open loop, when you're trying to remember something or you're rehearsing for something, that thing will occupy your mind to a great extent and you'll remember it, you'll rehearse it, you'll think it over many times. But as soon as you're done with it, like say you've taken a test and you no longer have to remember something, or if you're a waiter at a restaurant and you've just fulfilled the order, you will it'll just basically disappear from memory. You'll have a much harder time remembering it. It's known as the Zygarnik effect. Right. Um, and so when you close a loop it's become something that occupies your mind a lot less. And th- this is basically why cliffhangers are so are so effective, that until the loop is closed, you just keep ruminating and thinking about this thing until you know what the answer is going to be. 
Right. And that also helps make everything a bit more addictive. Yes, it does. Yeah. So, you know, one way to make something more addictive is open a cliffhanger and don't close the loop. Right. Well, okay, we're going to run out of time, but I guess I, I you, you sort of dropped this anecdote of going to Daniel Kahneman at Princeton and telling him about an idea for an alarm clock. <laughs> yes. And I, I, I guess I wanted to hear this whole story because, A, I don't know a lot of people who've met Daniel Kahneman personally, and B, what, <laughs> I just want to hear about your idea for an alarm clock and, <laughs> um, and where that all came from. Uh, I'm trying to remember the idea for the alarm clock. The idea for the alarm clock was just that... Um, you kind of sail through the world without really paying much attention to the world and and you you just kind of skate through and you try to think as little as possible this is something true about humans that we we are cognitive misers we're a bit miserly about thought we like to only devote the minimum amount to get by in life and the the thing he was suggesting was um Basically, you need this clock to pop up occasionally and shout at you, this is really important. This is something you should pay attention to. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like a decision. It's an important decision-making. It's an important right. decision alarm clock, yeah. So every it sort of like hits you over the head and says you should pay attention to this thing. Um, so he was suggesting you do that. I was trying to work out a way for us to subtly I- indicate to people that this thing that was about to happen next was important. And one of the ways we we talked about in some of the research I did with some of my colleagues was you present the, the idea in a font that's hard to read. So let's say you're reading something, it's in a very easy to read font, you're reading, you're reading, you're reading, then suddenly you get to a bit where the font is harder to read. Because it's harder to read, people should slow down and pay more attention to it, and that should be like the metaphorical alarm clock. And he said, oh, that's, that's like an alarm clock that kind of hits you over the head and says, hey, you should pay attention to this thing. I see. But in the end, it's so in the end, it's kind of like the opposite of what all these games are doing because they want to suck you into a mindless hole, more or less, right? Yeah. Well, that's, uh, that's what people describe. So, you know, we, we often have this theory that people who are gambling or people who are playing games are just experience ec- just ecstasy. They're loving the experience. This is the greatest thing I've done in such a long time. But what they actually describe when they get into these zones is that they, they zone out completely. And there's something really pleasurable about being in that loop. And you just keep going and going and going until something shakes you out of that. Right. And so the companies don't want to shake you out of that. They want you to be in that loop, which is why in a casino, for example, you never know what time it is. There are no clocks. It's usually dark in there. They want you to think that time isn't really an issue. And you'll spend lots more time in there because you don't have the cue that, oh, it's starting to get dark or it's starting to get light. Right. Well, on that sort of dark note, Thanks again for doing this. This, I mean, that was really fun. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Blinkist podcast. The episode is produced by me, Ben Schumann-Stoller, and Odie Constantino, who's never set foot in the United States of America. If you have any feedback or suggestions or comments about the survey or want to share what your favorite nonfiction book is or an author you want me to interview, shoot me an email at podcast at Blinkist.com. It'd be really cool to hear from you. We have some new podcasts in the funnel coming out soon. In the meantime, be good. This has been Checking Out. Checking Out.